Well, thank you so much for kind of bearing with me as we go over this book of James. And like Pastor Paul is saying, if you're sleepy, uh, you know what? I'm not offended. You can just sleep, and I'll pray that the Lord will speak to you in a dream. But I'm going to do my best to be as uh, energetic and passionate as possible. And I, I'm sure some of you aren't used to the level of passion that I have um, and the energy that I have. But I, I've had this passion uh, even ever since I was a kid, um, this energy to express my joy. When I was a kid, I was a really happy kid, and I always had a smile on my face, uh, but with that happiness came that sadness, um, and I was a really sad kid at times, and I remember um, one of the things about moving to Texas when I was a junior in high school from California, and I, I grew up in Southern California, uh, enjoying life, having a lot of friends. Uh, when my parents said that we were moving to Texas, uh, I legitimately thought we were going to live with the Cowboys. Like living on a ranch uh, with, with horses and all those things. And so I told my friends at school and my best friend, Ryan, he, he heard it and he went to his mom and he said, mom, can Jeremy just live with us? And, and it was, it was, that, and that was the kind of friend that he was. And he was my best friend. And um, his mom called my mom and said, Jeremy can live with us for the next two years. And it was, it was, it was totally serious. It was like, he can live with us. You don't, have to, I mean, you don't have to give us any money or anything. Just let him live with us. He can finish out high school with us uh, while you move to Texas. And my mom, um, again, she knew, she knew the McKinney's, and, and they were such a good family to us. She was like, you know what? I can't let my son live with you for two years uh, just to finish up a high school. And I remember thinking, like, this, this is so unfair. <laughs> like, I would love to live with their family. I love their family. They're, they're, he's like my brother. And you're moving me to... The middle of nowhere. You're moving me to, to Dallas? Like, nothing's in Dallas. It's terrible there. And as a young teenager moving from Southern California to South Lake, Texas, it wasn't even Dallas. Like, I was lied to. They were saying, we're moving to Dallas. And I find out we moved to South Lake. And it's like, it's neither Fort Worth nor Dallas. And it's like this place where there are no Korean people. There are no, there are no one that, there's no one that looks like me. And I remember our first night in, in South Lake, we went to the IHOP because we didn't know, like there was, everywhere else was closed. And as we walked into IHOP, everyone turned around and looked at us because we were the only Asian people probably in the like 50 mile radius. And they were just like, who are you people? Like, you know, like, where do y'all want to, where do you want to sit? And we were like, where are we? This is crazy. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I hate my parents. I hate them. How could they move us to Texas? And my little sister, she was just starting middle school. And so I was like, she's, she gets to start a new life. She gets to have a good time. I, I'm losing all my friends. All, my, all, all of the things that I've worked so hard are just going down the drain. I've lost everything. And so who once, I once was this really happy child living in Southern California, just always, always being just energetic and passionate about life. And all of a sudden, my parents, and really it felt like God, was just throwing me down the drain. And I remember that first week in school, it was, it was the worst. because I, I tried out for the, uh, the varsity tennis team because I was in tennis in, in California and I, was, I did well. And I remember it was 105 degrees. <laughs> and, and the way the tryouts worked was um, you had to play... <laughs> You have to play six sets. 
And uh, the winner of those six sets would then play the current JV team, and you have to you have to compete against them. And then the winners of the of that tournament had to go and play the varsity team. And me being straight from California, haven't ha I haven't played uh, you know tennis since moving and all this stuff happened. I went to the I went to the tryouts. I I won the first the first trial. I got to the second day, and that second day my body shut down. My mom. <laughs> gave me these six packs of Gatorade and I just chugged them down. And I remember the first guy I faced, I was on the JV, I was on the JV team. He served it and my leg gave out and I fell on the floor. And I was like, I'm done. I, I, I quit. I, I'm so tired. It was so hot. I was, I was sweating like crazy. So I, I didn't play tennis in, in high school. I was like, well, I'm not gonna make any friends on the tennis team. Uh, I went to my classes and everyone already had their friend groups. Um, it was junior year, so everyone was really focused on college. I was focused on surviving. Because I would, I would go to class. No one knew me, so I would sit in the very back. Um, no one really wanted to, to get to know me because there was no need. And so I remember lunchtime came around. It was so stressful. Lunchtime came around, and there was nowhere to sit. Everyone already had their own places. Like the football people sat over there, and you know the cool people sat over there. I didn't even know who, which people were, but I just knew everyone was white. And I was like, okay. Where do I go? So I remember I got my lunch and I went to the library. And I, 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 I ate in the library. And the, li the poor librarian, she came up to me and she's like, oh, there's no food allowed in here. And I was like, what do I do? Like, where do I go? And I remember the first two months of school was just that. And I, I remember telling my mom, oh, it was such a hard conversation. Because my parents knew what they were doing. Like, they knew how hard it was to move their kid junior year of college, of high school to a different state. And I told my mom, or I asked my mom, because my mom's a pediatrician and I was still a child. I asked my mom, mom, what are the symptoms of clinical depression? <laughs> and I remember my mom was like, oh, are you, are you depressed? And she's like, she, she kind of went through it. She goes, are you, you know, considering hurting yourself? And I told her, I was like, you know what? I never would, but yes, the thought has crossed my mind. Yes. And she goes, do you feel despair? And I was like, absolutely. And, and I, I remember it was a very hard time because um, it was the first time I've ever seen my mom look helpless. Because she knew she was kind of at fault for moving us to this new place. And, and it was funny, my dad, um, still, he was always like, man, that, that, was, that was crazy. Why did we do that? I'm like, how, what do you mean? How do you do? I don't know why you did that. Like, well, that's yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're thinking about it now. It's already the damage has already been done. Like, thanks for thinking about it now. And I remember my mom. She being so helpless, and me telling her, I, I told her specifically, Mom, don't worry. I'm not going to kill myself because I know it would kill you, and it would hurt you too much. So I won't. I won't do that. But just know. You know, I would really appreciate if you could prescribe me medicine, you know, some kind of medication. And, and my mom was like, you know, those medications don't work right away. It's going to take a long time. Like, do you need therapy? And also, I was like, mom, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how I'm feeling, but I just don't want to go to school. I don't want to, I don't want to be anymore because like my whole life has fallen apart. And something urged her in the most uncliche way. Um, and it's very important that I say it's uncliche, and it wasn't something that was forced upon her. She says, Jeremy, will you pray with me? 
And, and I, I think for a lot, of, a lot of times when my mom asked if I wanted to pray with her, it would be very much routine. Praying for you know, a meal, praying for us driving to church or driving in the car anywhere she would pray. And, and you know, praying for before we go to sleep. And it's just what you do because it's, it's time to pray. It's, it's, you know, you're in Sunday school, so you're praying. But I remember when I was expressing to her how depressed I was, she said, will you pray with me? And I, I told her, you know, mom, I don't want to pray, but I will. Because I don't know, I, I have nowhere else to go. I, I, I don't have any other options. And so, yeah, I'll pray with you, but I don't think it's going to work. I, I, I don't think there's anything that could work to make me feel better because I feel like, how do I explain depression? Like, it just feels like there's no, there's no purpose of getting up. There's no purpose of getting out of bed. You just want to be there and just die. So when she said, let's pray, and we, I remember we went to her room, and my mom, being the woman of faith she was, she just kneeled on the floor. And I, I'm kind of just standing there, and she's kneeling, and, and she just starts praying, and I'm like, okay, so I kneel, I kneel as well with her. And I'm not, I'm not quote-unquote charismatic. I'm not, I'm not one that, like, I don't, I, I, I'm not like, I don't know, I, I don't want to say, it. I'm not weird. Like, I, I, I met a lot of charismatic people, and, and they, they, make, they make their charismatic experiences very like, whoa, like, this, it was so awesome, it was so crazy. But as much as I'm not that, I, I met Jesus at that time. And, and again, this is why it's, it's kind of a part of my testimony. I was a believer. I was, I've been a Christian since I was five years old. And I believed in Jesus, but I had never met Jesus before. And that was the first moment in that prayer, in the time where we were weeping and crying. It was the first time I experienced Jesus in a way that I, I, I still remember now. And essentially, Jesus invited me to embrace him. And I always remember, I, am, I was praying and I envisioned myself embracing Jesus. And I felt the scars on his back. And they were these like callous, deep scars that I felt on his back from the whipping that he got. And I, as I was hugging him and holding him, I felt these scars and I realized something very important, that Jesus understood my pain, that he empathized with my feeling of losing everything, of having nothing to live for, of, of feeling at the brink of death. And as I'm holding him, and as I'm, 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 I'm feeling these scars on his back, it lifts. This feeling of depression lifts over me. And yeah, I'm just weeping like crazy at this time with my mom and... I was like, I'm okay. I'm good. And, and this doesn't mean, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't deal with depression anymore. I still deal with depression. It wasn't a cure to my depression. But what it was, was realizing that Jesus is my Savior who understands my pain. That he's not just a God who looks down at me and is disappointed at me all the time and says, how could you feel the way you feel? That he experienced my pain. 
He experienced my loneliness. He experienced my frustrations, my tiredness, my sadness, that he understood what scars are, that the Savior that I was calling Lord wasn't this pristine figure, that Jesus has scars. You and I have scars, and we try so hard to hide our scars. We try so hard to look like we're all put together, like we have everything in in order. But Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has these scars and he's willing to show us the scars. What he did with Thomas when Thomas was doubting, and this is kind of how I understand it. In doubting, in times of doubt, Jesus wants to meet you and interact with you, not to condemn you, Not to scold you and say, how dare you doubt? He wants to come to your doubt and your frustrations by helping you understand the pain that he's gone through. The hurts that he's gone through. The rejection that he's gone through. So that your doubts is not responded to. It's not answered by by truth. It's answered with love. See, a lot of times when we have doubts... We think, oh, if I just read the answer, it's going to answer my doubt. No, doubt is not answered by facts. Doubt is answered many times by relationship. It's a level of trust that answers doubt. And when Jesus is bearing to us his scars and his pains, he's saying, you can trust me because I was willing to go through this for you. My salvation is sufficient for you. And I remember my mom was reading Isaiah, talking about a messianic promise about how by his stripes we are healed. And I remember being like, I guess that's what I experienced. Because it's by his scars that I realized that me having depression or me feeling sad about my situation, me feeling just down in the dumps, that I have a savior who accepts me, who loves me, who forgives me, who can redeem that because he understands that we have a high priest who understands our temptations and our pains and our failures, that we're not worshiping someone who looks at you, who looks at you as if you don't matter. We've, we've gone through some heavy stuff, and I, I feel bad because I feel like I'm just piling on more heavy stuff, but hey, I'm gone in a day, <laughs> so I don't got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. <laughs> but the reason why I wanted to bring a little bit more heaviness on the retreat, and I, I, I'm, I'm not that sorry because really, sometimes we need a wake-up call. The reason why we've been talking about suffering and trials And the reason why we've been talking about our response to these sufferings and trials is because in these sufferings and trials, it's where your faith grows. If life was perfect for you, if life is perfect for you, there's no need, there's no reason why you need a savior. What are you being saved from? If your life is perfect, if your life is great and everything you do is, is wonderful and amazing, if there is no tragedy that you've experienced, If there's no loss that you've had in your life, why do you need a savior? 
And a lot of times we meet people that on the outside, they look so put together. They look like they have everything. And so we say, oh, they don't need Jesus. They have a million dollars. They have $50 million. I mean, really, if you met someone, let's be honest. If you met someone and they had $50 million in the bank, $100 million in the bank, you probably would be like, hey, you, you can answer a lot of your problems. You, you have frustrations with your kids? Hire a nanny. You know, you have frustration with, with their SAT scores? Get a tutor or, you know, buy their grades. You know, do whatever you want. You know, like, if you have that much money, then all of the problems and stresses I have, you could just answer it by hiring someone or paying it. All of my problems revolve, and the answers to my problems, which they revolve around, are about money and what I have, or my relationships, or all these things. And so, you know what? You have a problem with your spouse? Just divorce that spouse and get a better one. I'm sure there's a better one out there. If you have a problem, if you have a problem in any sense with work, if you had $100 million and you had a problem with work, what do you do? You quit. You're done. You're good. You know, buy, go buy a new company. You know, it's, it's like if you have the resources, why do you need a savior? You don't. You don't need a savior. You don't need a relationship with the Lord. It's good to have the Lord as a friend, someone who's like, you know, there when you, uh, I don't know, when your kid turns, you know, when your kid turns 18, you're like, Lord, he's yours now. You know, like, he, God is there just to be someone who helps you with the things that are you know, out of your control. But what we learn from scripture, which I hope you, you take the time to really read throughout, is, is a story of a guy named Job. You know, and it's so funny. I, I heard a pastor. He was like, you know, I was, I was really down in the dumps because I got fired from my job. And so I read the book of Job because I wanted a job. <laughs> and you know what? The book of Job, because it, it, it tells you how to get a job, right? And so he's like, the book of Job was so good because you read about this really successful guy. And you're like, oh, man, this is going to be good because I need a job. But what happens in the book of Job is that this guy who's super successful and not only is he successful materially, he's successful relationally as well. He has children who love him. He's got workers who care for him. He's got all the things and all the food and all the property and everything he has. He, it's in his disposable, in this, his disposal. He's a, a, a big, a big kahuna. He's like, he's like the top dog. And, and it's weird because the book of Job basically talks about the devil, or not even the devil, it's, in Hebrew it's the adversary. And so there's a, there's a, um, a confusion sometimes. I mean, again, the scholars debate whether it's actually Satan who's talking to God uh, or the adversary who's just an angel who is speaking to the Lord. Again, I'm not going to get into the big theological thing of it, but I'm going to call him the adversary. And this adversary angel goes to God and says, hey, God, this guy Job, he only loves you because of what he has. And God says, no, he's a righteous guy. He doesn't love me just because of the stuff he has. And so the adversary is like, well, let's test this. And God's like, okay, you can test it. So the adversary, being allowed by God, takes away everything Job has. Everything. All his earthly possessions just whoop, 
gone up in, up in a in a in a tornado and i think dallas understands that it just comes through and boom it's all gone and then <laughs> to make matters even worse the adversary says hey god he didn't denounce you and god's like yeah i know he didn't denounce me and the adversary's like he didn't denounce you because he still has his help and and <laughs> What I find so interesting in this is that Job gets these boils and he gets this disease and his health starts to deteriorate and his wife, and, and mind you, his wife just has, has just lost her children, her 10 children. She's, she's lost her family. So please don't be too harsh on this woman because I, I really, I really empathize with Job's wife. She has lost her children. She has lost her home. She has lost her, her husband's health. And I realize this, um, for, for the wives, that when your husband is sick, it, 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 for whatever reason, it, it also hurts you. I mean, at least for me, when I'm sick, it, it also it pains Grace to see me sick. I mean, when Grace sees me even stressed, she's like, oh, it, it hurts her. And so this woman sees her husband covered in these boils, having lost her children, having lost all of her possessions. She tells Job, curse God and die. I know that, I know we make fun of her and we're like, oh my God, how could she say that? But I'm like, yeah, Joe, like just die. Like your life's over, man. You've lost everything. You've lost your kids. You've lost everything. You know, you lose your health. Like God hates you, dude. If, if God hates anyone, God hates you. And the story of Job is usually preached in this weird way. And I'm not knocking other preachers. It's just, how do you preach a story like that? You jump to the ending. And the ending's nice because all of a sudden, da 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 Joel gets everything back. You know, double. And he becomes a super wealthy man and he, he has more kids and he probably marries a different wife and, and he you know, kicked out that old wife and got a new wife and everything's good and honky-dory. And, and, and pastors sometimes say, this is what faith can give you. When you go through trials and you have faith, God will give you double. And which kind of leaves an interesting premise. Is, okay, so you're saying Job had faith and therefore God gave him double. And sometimes they even go, he gives them a double portion. Okay, so why am I not getting a double portion? It's because you don't have enough faith. So how do I have more faith? You need to pray more, Okay. I prayed more. Why am I not getting a double portion? Because you need to fast more. Okay, I'll fast more. And, and it, it's this cycle, and all of a sudden, I'm at the very end, and I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor now. <laughs> Where's my double portion, God? It's in heaven. <laughs> and it, it becomes this really frustrating thing where it's like, wait, 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 wait. You said Job gets double now. Like, he gets in this earth. Where is my double portion this is so unfair. And that's what faith in faith looks like. Having faith that your faith is going to bring about a double portion. And for some of you, it's work. That when you lose everything, when everything gets swallowed up in a tornado, and you lose everything, you're like, I got to work harder, and I'll just build it up from scratch again. And it's this resilient spirit that says, I can do it. This can-do attitude that says, you know what? Everything got lost, but I can do it. I can build it back up from the ground up, and it's beautiful. We have documentaries about these kind of people. 
that they lose everything and they, they, they pick themselves up by their bootstraps and they work really hard and that brings them success. The story of Job is not about faith in works or about faith in faith. It's about faith in grace. And this is what I want to share with you today. Job has these three friends, terrible, terrible friends, who tell Job in one way or another, the reason why you've lost everything, the reason why you have, you have lived this life of suffering, the reason why your life is so crappy is because you have sin in your heart and you've sinned before God. So Job, you need to repent, you sinner, you sinner, sinful, sinful man. And it's because you've sinned that God is cursing you. That God has condemned you. That God wants you to know how much he's angry at you. How much wrath he has towards you. How you have failed to meet the expectations of God. So that's why you've lost everything. So Job, you need to work harder. And Job, you need to have more faith in God. Ooh. Bad friends. And yet... Sad to say, I've heard these friends in my churches that I've grown up in. I've heard these kind of friends in college. I've heard them in seminary. I've heard them in my own family. So again, I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone. But there are times. There are times where failure occurs. And people want to say, hey, it's because you got sin." The reason why your life isn't going so well, the reason why you didn't get into the school you wanted, the reason why you didn't get the girl of your dreams, the reason why all this stuff happened is because you got a sinful heart. You need to work on it. You need to make sure that you're right before God. That's why you didn't get what you wanted. When you're right with God, then God is going to open the doors. He's going to make it where you get everything you need because when you're right with God, he's going to make things better. So you need to pray you need to go to church. You need to go to early morning prayer. You need to go to all the Bible studies. If you miss a single Sunday, oh, you better not blame God when you fail again. It's because you missed Sunday. It's because you missed out on praying that one day. That's the reason why you're going through all this failure. What Job experienced was God. And, and, and Job met God. Job met God in a very, very real way. And I find it so interesting because I think people think, even though it's written in the Bible, that Job meets God and God tells Job, my good and faithful servant, you've done so well that I put you through this test of all of this loss and all this failure. She's fine. She's fine. I put you through all of this struggle and all of this tribulation that has come before you, and I'm so proud of you. That the adversary has taken everything from you, and you have passed the test. And so, Job, you will now be my number one, my number one servant, and I will put you on a pedestal, and yes, I will give you double, I will give you triple, I will give you quadruple. You are the best, and I love you, Job. Congratulations, you've won the grand prize. No. Job 
God. God tells Job, were you there when I created the whole universe? Were you there when I created every facet of, of creation? Were you there when I made the depths of the oceans? Were you there when the Leviathan was in the deep? Were you there when I made everything, when I spoke things into, mo into motion? And Job is but to remain silent. Job experiences the holiness of God. The greatness of God. The majesty of God. He experienced God not in this small form that we create God to be. This lovey-dovey friend of a God. This, this God who is just simply, oh, he's my bud, he's my pal, I love him so much. Oh, nuggy, nuggy, nuggy. No, God is telling Job, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. This is a part of my plan. You don't even know the beginning of my plan. You don't know the end of my plan. Who are you, Job? Who are you to think that your plan is better? Who, who are you to think that what you're going through isn't a part of my plan? Who are you? And I know it sounds harsh, but Job learns a very important lesson of why we worship. We don't worship God because we understand God. Let me say that again. We don't worship God because we understand God. We worship God because we can't understand Him. And I know that sounds weird, so I'm going to unpack it a little bit. If God was understandable, then we wouldn't be children. We would be the parents. If God, if God was, a, if we were able to know the ways of the Lord perfectly and know everything that there was to know about God, we are no longer the child. We are no longer the students. We are the master. We become the master. The reason why, the reason why it's important to learn the humility of a student the humility of a child, the reason why you need to have a childlike faith is because our faith is not about how much you do, how much you know. It's not even about how much you believe. What our faith is all about is that our faith is based on a God who is greater, who is better, who is holier than us. That his ways are higher than our ways. And Jesus understood this. Jesus understood this so intimately and so well that he, he went on the cross. He allowed himself to be hung on a cross. He allowed himself to be whipped and to be latched. He allowed himself because he understood that submitting to the will of God was better than submitting to the will of his own. And Job understood the same thing. Job understood that submitting to the will of God, no matter how hard it may seem, is better than following his own will. But what Job really needed in this time was not simply submission, but it's something that needs to pair with submission, which is patience. A lot of us don't have patience. Patience is something that I've learned that money destroys. 
And I know, you know, a lot of us have heard that money, money can't buy you happiness. I'd like to disagree. <laughs> and I know, I know that sounds weird. I know even Pastor Paul and I talked about this a little bit. But I, I, I kind of think money can buy happiness. Temporary happiness. Okay? I, I, I mean, let, me just, let me just set that baseline. I think money can buy me temporary happiness. But I think what ends up happening is that when you have a lot of money, you end up inherently destroying patience. And I think the lack of patience in life inevitably makes your life less happy. So as much as money can buy you happiness, it cannot, it can never buy you patience. If anything, it destroys patience because, I mean, think about it. I mean, you guys have like a tollway, right? Like, you know, on, on 35 and 635. If you had $100 million, you can take that tollway anytime you want and you're going to get your, to your destination faster. That will make you happy. But the next time you find yourself in traffic, you're going to have a little less patience. You're going to be a little bit more road ragey. You're going to say, oh, I just wish I, was, I should have just taken the toll. It's worth that $5. You know, even if they upped it to $20, it's worth it because I can just go, you know, and just get home. Money can buy you happiness, but it destroys your patience. And this isn't me to say don't take the tollway. I'm just saying be cognizant that being wealthy having the wealth that we have as Americans, as people in a first world country, a lot of you wouldn't survive a third world country because you don't have the patience to survive a third world country. I mean, even think of the internet over there. You're like trying to load up Instagram and it's like, like nothing loads. Money destroys our patience. I want to read to us from James chapter 5, starting from verse 1. And I know this is going to be harsh. And man, I, you know, I, I kind of, I like you guys so much. I like, I like this church a lot. And I'm, I feel bad for being harsh, but I'm going to be harsh. So I, I love you. I care about you. But um, I think you need to hear this. So starting from verse 1, it says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the, in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those, who, those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth 
or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Harsh words. Harsh, harsh words. When it comes to when it comes to you, and I don't know all of you very well, and so this is not a condemnation on you. Please, please, I'm not trying to judge you in any way. I'm trying to give you warning. Man, this is like this is not what I want to say at all because I I really do like you guys. God has placed all of you in a very interesting situation where you you have been given so many gifts, you have been given so many blessings, you have been given so many things, and I I think what ends up happening is, is we have let our faith corrode. We have let our faith go unpolished. We have let our faith go unattended to, and instead what we attend to is our gold and our silver. And, and what I mean by this, and again, I don't know you all very well, but I, I can kind of guarantee you that some of you check the stock prices and your accounts, your account balances, your budgets, making sure that every penny is in the right place, more so than you even care about where your relationship with the Lord remains. And I say this not as a condemnation, but as a warning, because what we're talking about when we talk about finances is that it must be utilized as our servants rather than us being a servant unto our money. I I am a big proponent in investing. I'm a big proponent in making sure that your money is working for you, that your money is doing things. I'm in the stock market. I make sure that my investments are placed everywhere and, and, and diversified and all these things. But I also need to make sure that at any moment, any moment, that I'm willing to give it all up. That I'm willing to liquidate everything if God is the one who tells me to. Because my heart does not lie in the treasures of here on earth. It does not lie in material things because I need to understand that things of this world can go up in a flash. Not to say that they will. I'm not prophesying over you. But the reason why we have this attitude is because what is more important Truly, what is more important? Is it things of this world or is it our relationship with God? The steadfastness of Job was not that Job, it was not that Job got everything doubled. That is not the riches of Job because all the things that were doubled, guess what? Job dies, he loses all his earthly possessions. So he lost it all again. What a sad life. You know, he, he, he became rich. He lost everything. He became rich again. And then he died and he lost everything. But what did he have that remained forever and ever and ever beyond all eternity? His relationship with a Lord that created everything. A relationship with the Lord that when the Lord speaks, Things are made. Things happen. His relationship was with a God that not 
only made him successful. That didn't matter. His relationship was with a God that did miracles. You see, when, when Peter and the disciples met Jesus, and I think Peter's story is very interesting. You know, he's on a fishing boat, and he's, and he's fishing all day. He doesn't catch anything. And, and, and Jesus tells him, hey, just throw it on the other side. And, and Peter throws it on the other side, and, and his nets begin to break. Their boats begin to sink because so many fish are being caught. You know, if I was Peter, how sinful I am? You know, if I was Peter, what I would tell Jesus? Hey, Jesus, why don't you stick around? <laughs> why don't you stick around a little longer? Because my fishing business is, is in need of your employment. And I'll pay you really well because, man, when you're around, my nets are always full. And I'm doing really well. <laughs> Jesus, next time my fishing boats go out, instead of just taking two boats, let's take like 12. <laughs> let's, let's make this a party. And we'll, we'll ask you which side to throw the nets on. And we'll have 12 boats full of fish. And you know, once I sell those fish, we'll buy 12 more. And it'll be 24 boats. And we'll go out and we'll, we'll make it a, a big corporation. And we'll have the Sea of Galilee. And we'll become the Sea of Galilee fish. You know, and, and we'll have this corporation up in lights. And, 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 and Jesus... Just stick around, and I'll pray to you. Oh, yes, I, I don't worry. I will pray to you. You are the Messiah. Congratulations. Um, I, I'll pray to you, but make sure, make sure that um, next time I, I bring up the fish, bring some variety. You know, maybe add some tuna. You know, add some salmon. Yeah, that Jesus, that'd be really good. But Jesus tells Peter something very important. He goes, and I, you guys all know it. I can make you fishers of men. And, and for some of us, that doesn't mean anything because we're not fishermen. <laughs> but imagine telling a fisherman, a, a very smelly and uh, hard blue-collar, uh, blue-collar worker guy uh, who, who's never spoken to people in public, who's never, who's never had theological training by any means. He, this is the kind of guy, he probably says like five words a day to his workers. Uh, there, uh, there. He's telling him, you're going to be a fisher of men. That it's the same man that becomes the preacher who brings 5,000 people to know the Lord in the book of Acts. God is not in the business of making your business about business. God is about making your business about his business. About his glory. About his favor. Because he knows your business, your wealth, will fade. But his wealth is eternal. Again, this was super hard to preach. Because um, I don't know you very well. And I, I, I've even told my wife, as a pastor, as a pastor, I don't like giving harsh sermons to people I don't know because I don't know you. And if I teach a lot about relationship and I don't know you, it's, it's harsh. So really, if, if this is too harsh for you, I'm sorry. And let's... let's you know, you can, you can take my number and we can, we can talk on the phone and just hang out because I feel really bad saying all this harsh stuff. But the reason why I say it is out of love. This has been a hard year for me. Um, recently, there was a Sunday, and I, now it's like all mixing together, but it was in the beginning of September. And as a pastor, I'm going to just 
share real quickly the story uh, just to wrap us up. As a pastor on Sunday after I preach to my congregation, I'm very exhausted. And I, I, I go downstairs and we have a basement and we have fellowship, we have lunch, and we eat together. <clears throat> and, you know, it's great. It's like seeing everybody and it's full and it's like, ah, it's all lively and all crazy. But I just need to go home and, and I just need to like sleep just get away from people because it's, it's very exhausting kind of going from person to person being like hey how you doing how are the kids how's everything okay do you have any prayer requests okay I'll be praying for you and I write them down and I make sure like I'm praying to everyone so I go home and I, I usually turn on football when it's football season I, I, I take a nap and I fall asleep so uh, the first week of Sunday uh, like the first week of September on a Sunday um, while I'm napping my phone rings I pick up my phone and one of our members, who's an older Korean, a Korean lady, um, you know, grandmother, who has been bringing this, um, this young boy, who's her neighbor, to our church the past two years, she calls me on the phone and in Korean. And she's speaking to me in Korean. She, you know, she knows my Korean's not very good, but in Korean, she, just, she explains to me, she goes, Ty is dead. What? And I'm like half awake. And I remember, I remember just like, Ty is dead. No, she's saying, what are you saying right now? What, what are you saying? She's dead. She, he's, what? And she goes, he's gone. He's dead. I, I don't know what to say. I, I, I have no idea what to say. I'm like, she's um, Because it was such a, I don't know, they don't train you for this stuff. And so I called the police, and the police basically are like, we cannot give you any information, sir. And I'm like, hey, I'm this kid's pastor. He's been coming to my church the past two years. Um, can you give me any information about it? This is what I've heard. This is what someone has told me. Someone told me something about his dad and about him. And, and, and basically the, se the secretary at the police department, she's like, you know, sir, I'm really sorry. I'm going to connect you to our sergeant. But I want to let you know, that sounds like something that has happened. But I can't give you any details. And so the next day, and again, a whole day goes by, the so a sergeant calls me and he's like, you know, sir, I'm really sorry, but we can't give you any information until a press release comes out. And so I go, so there's a press release. Like, so there's something that's going on. He goes, sir, I can't give you any more information until the press release comes out. The press release may or may not answer some of your questions. I go, like, sergeant, like, thank you, but can you talk, give me to anyone else who can, who can help me with this? And he, and he sends me to a commander. And like, I don't, I don't know, he was in. He goes, and I talk to the commander, the commander's like, I'm sorry, sir, we can't tell you any information until the press release comes out. I'm like, dude, I'm dying here. Did something happen to, to one of my members? And in this process, I'm, I'm with this Ajima, this this, Chitani, this older lady who, who knew this kid and has been bringing him for the past two years to our church. And so he started coming when I started coming, uh, when I started leading this church. And... I'm like with her, and I'm like, I'm like talking to all these policemen, and they're not telling me anything that's going on. There is no press release. No one's giving us any information. I'm praying. I've never prayed this before. I, I was praying. I, I pray that he's kidnapped. I'm praying that he's kidnapped by his father because I don't want him to be dead, like I've heard. But again, I don't know what's going on. The next day, someone from victim services calls me, not a police officer, just someone in the police department, and she goes, 
I'm here to let you know, you know, Ty has passed away. And he was killed by his father. And his father committed suicide. My whole life was just spinning. What? This kid that's come to church every Sunday, his dad did what? What happened? Like, oh, is this real? Is this happening? And, and I, the, the next couple of days were just a whirlwind. I met his mother uh, basically the story to make a long story short his mother won custody on a Friday full custody of her, over her son um, but for whatever reason the courts let, the, let Ty go home with his dad and his dad losing custody said there's no way for me to get my son so no one can have my son and so killed um, our beloved Ty and um, then killed himself, and, and so I met with the mother. Neither parents were Christians. This young man was um, introduced to our church just because a neighbor brought him to church. <clears throat> met with the mom, and you know, explained to her my condolences, and that we would do the, ser- the funeral service, and all, all these things. And uh, did the funeral service? It was on the news. It was. Loss happens. Suffering happens. But there was something, as I'm blaming myself for not being more involved in this kid's life, I had never met his parents before. I just kind of saw him, and he was this little kid that was like a little rough around the edges. He, he, he ran around a lot, and he like pushed other kids. Like he, was a little, he was a little violent sometimes. You know, it was, it was a little bit like he was a problem child, but we looked at him, and we were like, yeah, he's just one of our kids. Like, we yelled at him a lot, and we, we like scolded him, and we were harsh with him. But like realizing he was gone hurt a lot of our members. And we're just, I remember some of the moms were even like, I was so mean to him. <laughs> they, were like, they were like, I was so harsh on him. And, and I had to explain to them, no, 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 you were loving him, and I know you think you were harsh, but like you were showing him the love of Christ. Our church, we have communion every Sunday, and, and we do it um, just, uh, just simply because one of my seminary professors expressed how important communion was. And I explain every Sunday to our congregation that communion is, is for only believers, for believers only, and for people that accept, have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so every Sunday, and it's with, I, sometimes we have family service every um, first Sunday of the month, and so even when the kids come up, I, I tell the parents, you know, don't let your kids take communion unless they are believers. Ah, oh, man. Ty had a friend named Owen, and Owen's parents come to our church. And so Ty doesn't come with parents with, his, with doesn't come to parent to church with his parents, but he's really close friends with Owen. And him and Owen were talking while communion was going around. They're like, "Hey, let's get in on that crackers or juice." <laughs> and, and and Owen is telling Ty, and he's like, "You gotta believe in Jesus." you want to take the juice and the crackers. And so after service, and I remember this was like a year ago, Ty and Owen came up to me with, with uh, Owen's mom. <laughs> and, and Owen's mom was looking at me. She's like, you can say no. Like, you don't have to say yes. And, and basically, Owen and Ty are like, uh, we want to accept Jesus. <laughs> and, 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 and Owen's mom was like, they only want to do it because they want to take communion? Um, 
they, they don't really understand what they're agreeing to, but they want communion. And so I remember I kneeled down, because they're like these eight-year-old boys, or nine-year-old boys at the time. And I was like, all right, guys, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And they're like, yes. It's like, do you believe that you're a sinner? And I was like, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? I'm like, yes. Do you believe that he rose again? Yes. Do you believe that he's in heaven? Do you believe that he's with the Father? Yes. Do you believe the Holy Spirit, the sign and seal of your salvation? Yes. And I was like, all right, let's pray. <laughs> and, and I remember saying, uh, saying, repeat after me. And I, I said the believer's prayer with them, and we prayed it. And we got up from that moment... And Ty and Owen were so happy that the next family service that they took communion, they were like, yeah! But I remember Owen's mom, she was like, do they not need to go through a class? <laughs> like, don't they need to like, go through this? And I'm like, you know, it's just a cracker and juice, but it's the fact that they are confessing that Jesus is Lord. They're sinners. That makes the cracker and juice symbolic. And really more than about important for their salvation. That you know what? It doesn't matter that they're just kids. That they understand that Jesus died for them. And that Jesus rose for them. And the Holy Spirit is with them now and forever. And I was telling this to my church the Sunday after Ty passed away. And I was explaining to them. I was saying to them, you never know. You are not in control. You think you're in control because you're wealthy. Like, that's what wealth does. It makes you think that you have your life put together. But let me tell you what you experience loss. All you can find solace in, all you can find rest in is knowing that God saves. And you know what? I don't know if that prayer saved them. I don't know if my preaching helped. I don't know if any of that worked. If anything, all I prayed was that the communion that they took, the communion Ty took, introduced him to the love of Christ. And I was telling my church, I was like, I don't know if you understood it, but you know what? I fully guarantee that he's in heaven. And as much as I have guilt and shame that I could have done more in that little boy's life, I'm so thankful to God that I was able to pray that prayer with him. It doesn't take away the loss. It doesn't take away the loss. But it gives me hope that I'll see Ty again. It gives me hope that God's plan, God's will is greater than my will, than my plan. My will would have Ty being alive. That he would still be running around making a mess and still doing the things that drive us crazy. That would be my will. But you know, the will of God is a strange thing that is beyond my understanding. <clears throat> and I need patience, perseverance, steadfastness. That when things don't go my way, that whether I get the opportunity to know God's way or not, that I will trust in Him. That I will not only trust in Him, I will love Him. And not only will I love Him, but I will worship Him. No matter what. No matter what the circumstance. If your life is perfect, you don't need a Savior. 
But if your life, if you encounter struggles, if you encounter the loss and the feeling of being out of control, the feeling of everything going the wrong way, I guarantee you that the power and blood of Jesus are available for you. They're available for you to experience eternal life, for you to experience His love and redemption. And this is where This is where faith works. Faith works when we are patient with the will of God. Faith works when we trust in the will of God. Faith works when we give up our will, when we give up our ways. Faith works when we focus on Christ. Faith works when we have a relationship with a living active God. I love you even though you're not my congregation. I love you because Christ loves you. I love you because I know all of you are going on your own journey full of full of joys and sadnesses, full of trials and victories. And I love you because God loves you in spite of all those things. And He, more than wanting you to experience success, wants you to experience Him. So as the worship team comes up, and as we close in a song, if I can invite the worship team just to come forward at this time. Is, is before we sing and before we rise and we stand and we sing, I know we're not in youth group, you know, we're not here to make a, a big emotional, uh, emotional commitment, you know, to experience God. But could we just take a moment before we sing? Just to pray. Just to go before the Lord. And then I'll close us and then the worship team will sing. Let's pray.